you got to value the journey and you got to value the people you're going to discover along the way because that's the rewarding part, right? That's much more rewarding. And I think that's been something that I learned from my early mentors is just you spend your life looking for people you want to work with. And often it takes a long time to realize that. Did you get a spanking if you went outside those boundaries? Yes. Oh, kinky, huh? Is that the quote you're going to take for the intro? Is that what you want? No. A few of the challenges along the way, because those are not good enough examples. Starting a business does not make sense on so many aspects. It always takes longer than you think it's going to take. But if you knew that ahead of time, you wouldn't do it. Barcelona? Are you supposed to uh, Barcelona? Yeah, and I'm not going to say that on tape. Bro, Ooh. Barcelona moves on from Lionel Messi, and we thought Barcelona was dead. Yeah, right? we actually thought they were going to go bankrupt, lose the entire sure. team. That's right. Barcelona said, "No, no, no, no. We're from fucking Barcelona. Mm-hmm. We will dig down deep in our loins, and we will fight for everything we got because that's what Barcelonans do." Name two players. So that's the thing about this Barcelona squad. They're so deep. They got these Stop guys. Stop saying the football. They're so young. That is how it's called, right? Yeah, yeah for Barcelona sure. Barcelona ball. What are you And that is a good is point because when they lost Methy, you thought it was just over and done with. Bingo. Because Lionel Methy is game changer. He's yeah. winning that golden Lombardi. Yeah. That's right. What about Chris Polific? Well, uh-huh. that's the thing about Polific. He's playing too. <laughs> Born for Barcelona. What's your problem, AJ? My name is Mark. I'm uh, 42. I'm the CEO and one of the founders of Unido a company that founded a few years back to solve a problem I had, well, for, I think, decades. Unido is a no-code integration platform, which is, I guess, a techie way to say that we allow anyone to connect and integrate the tools that they work in every day, whether it's your Trello, your Slack, Salesforce, Jira, Google Sheet, Calendar, and a bunch more. You might have heard tools like Zapier or MuleSoft on the enterprise side. Well, our claim to fame, if you want, on the market is that we do really deep two-way integrations out of the box. So say you're a marketer living in Asana and you want to work with web developers that are in GR or GitHub, well, we'll sync your tasks in Asana with issues across. So it feels like everyone is really working in the same tool, but obviously they're not. So you'll get you know the developer's comments, attachments, status updates right in Asana, and you can respond from there. Nobody leaves their tool. And we think in a world where uh, people can work from anywhere, and we're finding that the anywhere part is not just about physical location. It's also about working from any digital tool. And where are you located? We're based out of Montreal, Canada. The whole, pretty much all the company is based here, actually. And before we get started and more in-depth questions for you, I decided I'm going to start off this interview a little different. Are you ready? Bring it on. All right. I just got a new dad's joke book. So what do you call a cow laying down? Hmm. I'm going to let you surprise me with that one ground beef. Hmm. That is definitely up there in the dad joke section, which I thought I really mastered, but clearly I still have a lot to learn. Yeah. Well, you laugh at my jokes about as much as my wife does. So maybe there's someone out there who might giggle and make me feel a little bit better about myself. So no, no, it's good. I've taken ownership of it and will tell my wife this joke tonight. All right. So you're in Canada, Montreal. So are you from there? Yeah, I grew up here. My parents are originally from France and immigrated here, but I lived a couple of years also out west in Western Canada and Alberta, but promptly came back for university, I'd say. I always just find it interesting why people are where they are, even if you grew up there or, you know, if there's a particular reason. Is there any particular reason you love Canada? I mean, Canada's pretty broad. I'd say I'm a Montreal guy. I think Montreal is really, it's my city and for a lot of reasons. And 
it's got that mix, that right mix for me of some people would say it's the European versus North American kind of lifestyle. But uh, I don't know, it's got the right vibe for me. And I always love the city, having visited quite a few of them. This is what I call home and it feels like home. Okay. Well, I appreciate you even saying that because I mean, when I think Canadian, I'm just like, I could put a blanket statement over it. But people think Montreal is a little bit different. You see, it's like more European, you're saying? Yeah. Well, I mean, would you say it's the same thing living in on the West Coast as the East Coast or the Midwest or Florida and the US? It's all pretty different. And Canada is very similar in the sense that there's a wide breadth of lifestyles and types of places. And Montreal is a very unique place because, you know, first of all, Quebec has got this bilingual aspect of French and English and French as a first language. And then Montreal is an even more bigger mix of languages and cultures all coming in, in the same city, which is a mix I particularly enjoy. Okay. That's actually helpful. I mean, it's like, I know it's a blanket statement. I don't think everyone from the Midwest is like people in the Southeast and Northeast and stuff, but you don't really know if, unless you ask. And I knew there was some French spoken up there. So that's kind of how it's broken out. It's like Montreal and Quebec is kind of where they speak more French versus the other parts of Canada. Yeah, that's generally, there's a higher percentage. I'd say Quebec is mostly Francophone. Montreal is more of a mix. There's a lot more of an Anglophone aspect because of the business side of the city, I'd say. But there's Francophones all across the country, but they're a much smaller, I would say, percentage of the population than here, which is makes it very particular in terms of place to live in because there's an element of having to protect the language because it's such a minority in North America. So you could compare it to like, Barcelona, you know, has the Catalan language is different than the Spanish, the rest of Spain that speaks Spanish as first language. And they're fiercely protective of that culture and that language. There's a lot of that dynamic here too, but I'm a big believer in multiple languages being a richness and adding more than the opposite. And we've kind of baked that into the culture of the company too, where we'll pay for both English classes or French classes, wherever you're coming from. And we do have people coming from different places in the world. So we're really trying to emphasize like that duality as a strength as opposed to a weakness. Well, I recently heard, I, maybe I would say in Barcelona wrong as well. I think they call it Barcelona. Are you supposed to the Barcelona? Yeah, and I'm not going to say that on tape. Yeah. <laughs> well, how big is your company? We're 60 people in the company uh, all in Montreal. Okay. And I guess you gave us, like, I know Zapier I've used as an integration, but for anyone who's basically doesn't have any understanding of what you do, can you give us some simple examples and maybe people understand exactly what your product does and how it could help them? Yeah, we started a lot in the project management space and developer tools. So helping business people work with engineers who tend to all have their favorite tools, which are not the same. So we had a lot of marketers working with engineers or let's say a product manager trying to build a backlog of features or roadmap in their tool, whether it's a Trello or an Asana or a Rike, and having those you know, elements of the application actually be in sync with whatever the developers use. And that's typically a, a GitHub or, or a Jira or a GitLab and allowing kind of both groups to live in their tool that made them productive without having to force them to switch across. So really where we differentiate a lot of the players in the market is we're bi-directional out of the box, which means we'll integrate data and sync data two ways. So you can edit on either application and then the chains will be reflected. And if you try to build that with a lot of, well, Zapier in your example, it's, it's actually quite complex and you end up with a lot of issues like loops and most people kind of give up at that point. Yeah. I mean, that is one issue that even if, I mean, I imagine you have to have this issue too, but sometimes there are online connections. So I guess the easiest thing for me is like, okay, if I had a Google sheet and I put something in there, or let's just say me 
going in there to email you, actually someone reached out on your end, but what I would do is go on my Google spreadsheet and I could put today's date and then it was synced up with my Outlook 365. So it'd send you an automatic email. And that was because a zap was kind of connected between them. And so I didn't have to go in, switch a date on my Google sheet and then go email. So that's kind of like one connection. And that's what you're saying. Yours can kind of do both. Because the idea is that everyone kind of works a little differently, right? And it, within your company, you don't want to keep doing the same thing and all these different things. You just want them connected. So hopefully it's more automated. So again, you're saying that you do that for more of a business aspect that where people don't have to go in and update one thing somewhere and then somewhere else. And if you're doing that manually three, four five different times for five different programs, this kind of syncs it all and you can hopefully just do it once. Exactly. And then in your example, if I'd replied or someone replied to the automated email in Outlook, you don't want, might want to have that information reflected in the spreadsheet that started in the first place. So this is where the bi-directional starts get interesting, where you could push stuff out, but you can also get the information back in. So again, you can have your central spreadsheet that has that single source of truth, even though the information is changing all over the place. And that's what we're seeing today in businesses is that there's so much software, there's so much SaaS, and everybody can adopt stuff very easily. It's almost like software has become little building blocks and organizations have to assemble them together into workflows. And that's what we enable. But ultimately, it's a lot easier to integrate tools where people already work in than to change people and force them in other places. Because humans are unfortunately hard to change. And if they love something and they're used to working in a place, good luck trying to move them. Well, I guess when you started this, I mean, were you using Zapier or something else? And you said, hey, you just want to make this bigger and better? Like, why did you not just use something on the market whenever you started? Well, like some of our customers, like I tried. But the idea for Unido was on my bucket list if someone should solve this. I've been in product for a long time. So I was in this position where I had to jump around across the different tools of the people in my teams or in other teams in the company. And I had to copy paste and run around asking people where they were at. So it ended up on that list of you know, someone should solve this problem. Why don't the tools talk to each other? And I had tried at the time Zapier was in its, was already like pretty present. But at the moment I was trying to have something go two ways, that's when I struggled. And fundamentally what I needed was something that allowed me to collaborate across. And one-way collaboration really isn't collaboration. Makes sense. Well, is there anything else you, we should know about your company before we rewind to how you got started in entrepreneurship? Yeah, well, we're very intentional about culture and transparency. So if you're curious, we have a lot of our tools and documents and processes that we've published and shared on our website called betterworkplacetoolkit.com. And all of that is linked uh, from our career page. Obviously, uh, we're a growing company. So if you think that Montreal is a place that you'd like to work from, we actually bring in a lot of people. So have a look. I like this. So you set this up, this landing page, and if I put it in, I can download the kit. Or you can download it without even getting my email. Yep. This is, uh, I mean, we didn't invent a lot of some of this stuff or we stole from a bunch of different companies, not the content, but the practices, right? And we made them our own and then we're just resharing it with the rest of the world. Well, nice. Well, yeah. Why don't we go ahead and rewind to wherever you want in your story? Like I said, you're 42 today. So what year do you want to jump back to and how old were you? <laughs> For the beginning of the entrepreneurship journey, is that, is that what you want to focus on? Yeah, whatever you think is best. I see you graduated 2005. Yeah, I, that was the second attempt, actually, because I started university in 98, I guess. That's when I moved back to Montreal. And 
I was getting into a computer science program, but that was like my freshman year doing more intro classes. And I was doing a lot of little techie stuff on the side. And that's how I got some count. I kind of wound up in my first startup right in the dot-com kind of bubble. And I guess that's the beginning of my entrepreneur journey, joining a startup. That's probably a good place to start. And was that in Canada? That This was 99, you were about 19, I guess. Yeah, this was in Montreal. I was not a programmer, I guess, yet. I didn't know how to program, but I was comfortable with the technical stuff. So I was doing building websites, which were generally very ugly, but for, for little companies here and there. This was the beginning, I guess, of the web when people were creating their first websites for their businesses. And I was setting up like home networks for people. And I ended up setting up a home network for a friend of my uncle or something. And he ended up hey, you look like you know what you're doing. We're starting a business and we're meeting up in the next week or something. And he invited me over. I said, you know, sure. That's how I ended up getting involved in that first startup. It was a medical website for the European market. So like a WebMD, but really for the European market. And they had raised a chunk of money and had offices in like six countries in Europe. And just getting started, they were opening a Montreal office as the production arm, if you want, the multimedia production arm. Because if you don't know, Montreal and Canada in general has some really generous tax credits for a lot of things. And Montreal had some multimedia tax credits that made this really appealing, especially for European companies, to set up shop here to produce a lot of the content for the website. And that's how I got involved. I ended up in this basement after supper with a bunch of people that were much older than me, obviously. And I was the most technically savvy person, which is surprising because I really didn't know anything at the time. So I guess I faked it till I make it in a way. But we got involved. I got involved. I started setting up the office, doing everything technical from the IT side to hiring people to translate and do data entry on medical databases, medical encyclopedias, and all sorts of medical content. And that's how I got my first taste of the startup world. As a business leader, you and your time are pulled in a lot of different directions. Think of tasks you hate doing. Maybe it's inbox management. Maybe it's managing your calendar. Or maybe it's project follow-up. Delegating those tasks that you hate could save you up to 15 hours per week. That way, you can do the things that you love. It's time to focus on your strengths and delegate your weaknesses. Belay intentionally pairs clients with virtual assistants, accounting services, and more. Belay can help you reclaim those 15 hours every week. Great leaders don't do anything alone. Find the support you need to delegate those details with Belay. Belay has been helping business leaders with staffing solutions for over a decade. And you can find that out by checking out episode 84 of our podcast, where I interviewed the founder, Brian Miles. Get the right help right now with a virtual assistant from Belay. Belay is offering an exclusive VIP offer to all of our podcast listeners. So just text STORY to 55123 to claim your VIP offer. Again, that's STORY, S-T-O-R-Y, to 55123. So with Patreon, I heard it many times because you have that many episodes of Sign Up. So that's always in the back of mind. But then I checked it out a few times and I was like, do I really want to do this? So I'll push it off a little bit. And then you posted your goal achievement of 69 Patreon members. And I was like, you know what, what better time than now 
originally I was going to go for the lower one, the $9 a month. But one, I want to have the conversation with you. But two, I always find that anytime I cheap out, I always find that I want to return it and upgrade to what I really, really wanted. So that's why I'm paying the higher one, if that makes sense. But it was just constantly pushing it off, pushing it off. And then I would just like, fuck it. I already listened to all of them. So why not? And were you going to university at this time? Because I know you said there's kind of two stints there. Yeah, I was. I worked pretty crazy hours and I tried to continue university, but started failing some classes and I dropped out. I dropped out in the beginning of my first program year. I was like, like this is pretty classic. I was learning so much in the startup side and university felt like the slow path in a way, especially I had taken like a lot of early math and CS classes, which were very theoretical and so far from reality, it seems. So I ended up dropping and focusing entirely on the startup. And what did your parents think about that? I guess they weren't super happy. The good thing is I had a pretty good mentor, I guess, who hired me and was my quote unquote boss at the company. He saw that and he actually, my parents came in town and he had a conversation with them telling them, don't worry, you know, I'll make sure he goes back to school eventually. I think that's what he said. And I was like, sure, tell him whatever you need to tell them. But my parents were supportive in general, right? They're like, they were worried, but they didn't give me too much shit for it. And at the startup, did you like have equity or were you making any money? Like how did that work out for you financially? I had some stock options, of course, and I had a decent, like, especially for a 19-year-old, I guess, a pretty good salary. But the beginning, if you count the hours, obviously, and you convert it to an hourly rate, that's obviously not as always as interesting. But like at that time, I was counting any hours. But the startup, I mean, it went through high burn rate all the way up to the craziness and then the dot-com bubble burst. So I saw the whole process in the reverse and tearing down the company and shutting it down too. So I really condensed A to Z back to A or something in a short amount of time. So those stock options weren't worth a lot at the end. So how long were you there? Like a couple of years or how, how long exactly? Probably was I there a couple of years, a year and a half or something like that. All right. So you saw for like, I guess, nine months in, it was like the pinnacle. So you saw the ramp up and then basically like a triangle went straight back down. Yeah, I think it was more than nine months probably as we kind of built up and ramped it quickly. And then the reverse part of it was much shorter process. Okay. <laughs> so it's like going off a cliff. It wasn't like equal up. and. Well, you know, I wasn't one of the founders and also I didn't get to see some of the more probably painful aspects of it, but it was more like, okay, I was still involved in the IT side. Now, sorry, let's liquidate all the assets. Let's, hey, oh, there's all these awesome chairs, really expensive office chairs that we got. Does the staff want to buy them? And then the whole wind down process of shutting down the office, stuff like that. I got to say it like even past the last day of work of most people, right? So there was a lot of, I mean, overall, like that was an incredible learning experience, especially the, the age I had. And that's when I got the bug. Like that's when I was like, all right, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to start my own business one day. Not the shutdown part, obviously, but like this was everything to me. Like the lifestyle I wanted, which is very maybe masochistic in the end, if I think about it. Yeah, it is interesting because you did see both sides. If you only saw the positive, I could totally understand it. But then once you saw the negative, you're still like, hey, I can do my own business too. It is just kind of a cycle. It'll happen. I mean, I was 20 at the time. So, you know, not a lot of stuff scares you, I guess, at that time of age. And it's not like I had invested in the company anything but my time, right? So I didn't see it for me 
think there was that failure was a learning was like a win in a way like it was an amazing learning experience so i did take a lot out of it and i did get to meet some pretty awesome people and that taught me a lot of stuff that i still believe in today and so did you go back to college from there i did another startup first we kind of kept a few of the team members and kind of got hired for to open a new startup in montreal still in the medical but more pharma space and built the office built a team but that's when i started feeling like i was hitting a bit of a ceiling in terms of foundational knowledge maybe and as we kind of the leadership got hired into that that new company i just signed a contract at first i didn't want to commit for too long and i decided to go back to school then and kind of go back to those classes i had failed so the second startup you did, it was just some of the first people you're saying. And then after a little while, you said, hey, there's going to be a ceiling here. Now's the time to go back to school. Yeah, I was there, I think, nine months or so, or I think that was the length of the contract. And I was like, okay, do I want to stay here? And it wasn't like the leadership was hired after we had started building the company. So it wasn't a perfect fit from a cultural side. So then it was that one of those crossroads. And I think for me, it was like, no, let's go back and and learn the more fundamental stuff again, I think that's going to unlock me down the line. Then I see you went to McGill University, which is in Quebec as well, right? So Montreal? Yeah, McGill University in Montreal. Okay. So you don't have to move anywhere, or did you? No, I didn't have to move anywhere. Okay. Because I know sometimes when you go to college too, it's like some people go on campus or not. I don't know if you're living downtown, like where are you living and everything? Well, before, when I moved back to Montreal, I was in Alberta and Calgary, and I moved back to go to McGill. That was the initial reason for moving back. I had been accepted in the school. It's a pretty well-known university. And I, so I moved back to Montreal to start my degree. And then I got involved in this first startup, and that's when I dropped out. But I, when I went back, I kind of went back to the dean in a way and said, please, please let me in. And then they made you write this like intent letter and kind of beg for forgiveness and promise that you'll work hard and your GPA will go back up. And it's like, okay, I believe you. And they let you back in. So did you fulfill your promise? I did. And I think the notion, like when you're coming into college right after, you know, high school, like your perspective on college is very, very different. I remember first time in, I was like, it's always that law of least effort. Like, how can I get by with the least amount of work? which feels like that's how school was for a lot, of, a lot of my years there. But when I went back, it was like, hey, I'm paying for this. This is not my parents helping me. I'm choosing to go back. And I think I saw university college as a service I was paying for. So suddenly, <laughs> the mentality flip, right? It's like this professor, I'm paying this professor to teach me, so I will get the most out of it. And coming out of a startup where I was working crazy hours, just working, like I'd say, a normal, quote-unquote, 40-hour week at university is more than most students do. So I ended up pretty much acing university and getting some scholarships and things like that just by applying, I guess, some of the uh, work ethic that I'd learned in the industry. And then you graduate 2005, and do you go get a, another job in something technical or what? Yeah, I got suckered back in. Like last years of college, I had some more project-based classes and I knew some people that were starting something and needed a bit of help. So I managed to turn some of those project classes into industry projects and get paid for them. And that kind of opened up the opportunity of joining that business after. And I was hesitating between doing an MBA or getting back into the startup world and I jumped back in, but hardware startup this time. What was the name of it? 
It's called Microscience. It was doing digital signage for retail. But instead of the big screens you're used to seeing, it was doing very small versions, like almost electronic shelf labels, but still like three, four inch screens right next to the product that had pricing, but also specs and accessories that you can interact with and selling mostly into cell phone stores. So imagine every you know, cell phone in a mobile store had an interactive screen next to it with the plans and accessories and things like that. Something like a mini iPad. I guess it was, I don't even know if they had them at the time, but something smaller that just can switch easily. But y'all had a digital versus if they had printed something out and put it there with the price and everything. Yeah, exactly. This was pre-iPad. So I, we had to develop our hardware for uh, that had the screen and the interactivity and the touch and the wireless, the low price that allowed it to be installed next to every phone. And so how long did you work there? I actually did uh, probably eight years or nine years there, a pretty long stint. I mean, I put everything in there and I got hurt by the 2008 crash pretty bad. I guess it was my second market crash at the time. But it was interesting because it was hardware and firmware and like back servers in the back store and like a web app and a lot of different pieces of technology. I made it really hard too, but it was, I think, a lot of fun. And I think it comes down to like, we had some really cool people and great people on the team. And ultimately, that's what matters a lot, I think, in startups. Well, how big was the company? Uh, I think we got to like 20-something people, maybe 30. And you were there for, like you said, a long time, almost nine, 10 years. During that time, because before you had kind of joined two startups, would you consider this was a, kind of a startup or no? Oh, yeah. This was a complete startup. Like when we started, there was like no product, no nothing. We had to design the hardware, get it manufactured sell into telcos, really, really long sales cycles, large deals. That's one of the reasons that I, you need to, when we started with like, I'm not building another enterprise sales, sell into enterprise with 12 to 24 month sales cycles. Like I want people to just be able to buy with credit card. It'd been kind of really painful on that side. And what were you exactly doing while you were there? Did you do multiple roles over the time or just tell us what you learned? I was the product guy. So I was kind of running the development initiatives on the both the devices and the servers and the web application at the beginning doing some of that work you know myself and some of the coding and eventually kind of building a small team and defining the product strategy and why did you decide to leave there was a management buyout i guess you could say where one of the founders kind of bought back the company that wasn't in the best shapes but i helped them transition but that was kind of the kick you know where it was like hey remember you said a long time ago, you wanted to start a business yourself and all of this was to learn how. And it was like, this it has to be now or it's going to be never. And that kicked me off the cliff, I guess. So I helped the founder transition for a while and then able to sell off the company. That was my cue. And I started, I guess I pulled out that list of someone should solve it and did a bit of introspection and, okay, which ideas here do I want to tackle? And I picked a few and started testing them out. So this is 2014 and you're, it looks like you're about 34 or so. Yeah, I had a two-year-old at the time and probably 2015 is when I started, I'd say. Yeah. So were you married? Yes, I was married. I'm trying to rewind. Are you married now? I'm still married now and I have another one, another kid I had along the way. So at this point, it's endured the biggest tests, the startups and kids. Yeah, no, it sounds like it. So... When you made that transition, when you were quitting Microsoft, decided, did you already like for sure have something you were going to do? Because, you know, we already heard you say you're about to test some things, but I don't know if you're doing that still at Microsoft or if you quit and then let me test these things and then eventually I'll start a company. 
Yeah, I was in that transition period helping kind of the founders transition. I did that for a few months. And in the meantime, I was getting starting to work on those ideas and brushing off the coding skills, which had been pretty much left aside. But the realization at that point was that I also hadn't built a strong network in the I'd been in product a lot, talking a lot to customers, but I hadn't built a a good local or broader network on the business side or investment side. I felt like I could do the product stuff, but I didn't have anything around it. It was a bit of an aha moment, I guess, or on the downside, but that's why I joined. I said, how can I get a network really fast? And I joined a kind of early stage idea accelerator in a way to kind of run those ideas through and, and build a network at the same time. What was the name of that place? It's called Fanner Institute. It's kind of uh, got chapters kind of all over the world. Well, yeah, I'll jump into that. But first, I wanted to ask about you said you're married and you had a kid because your personal life, when you told your wife you wanted to do this, what was her reaction and was she working at the time? I mean, when we met each other on a St. Patrick's night, I was already in a startup in a way, right? I was already in that world. And so it was always part of the deal. That being said, when you start your own and you're the solo first founder, if you want, or building the first prototypes, it's a different level of involvement for sure. The way we got through it, which gives a sense of a bit of my personality in a way, we kind of wrote it up. We made it almost an agreement. It's not a legal agreement, I'd say, but we wrote down what were the boundaries of expectations. Things like, okay, well, kind of expect you to be back for family hour, like six to eight. And then after that, you can do whatever. And don't be traveling more than X amount of time. Like we set boundaries or expectations and we need a new car and by this time kind of thing. So we kind of made a list of things that had to be respected in a way in the contract. And that became a pretty good guiding factor where I knew if I was pushing those boundaries that I'd get in trouble in a way. That I'd also set our priorities right for the relationship to work throughout this startup adventure. I think it worked well. Did you get a spanking if you went outside those boundaries? Yes. Oh, kinky, huh? Is that the quote you're going to take for the intro? Is that what you want? No. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm just making sure because everything you talked about was time. How about financial? Like, did you have boundaries set on that? Like, hey, I need to make money within a year of doing this startup? Yeah. And as you can imagine, I didn't have uh, massive exits from previous startups. So it wasn't like I could fund a a lot of the beginnings. So we bootstrapped it massively. I did have some money aside and I scraped every program available for this stuff. And I have to say like just decent programs here for that, for R&D and for people who want to start entrepreneurship. And one of those, my wife used to call it, I guess the American version would be by Dunkin' Donuts salary. There was a program if you left the company and you were on unemployment insurance, you could convert and you want to start a business, you could apply to this program. If they accepted you, they would pay your minimum wage if you want as you started the business. So for a while, I had a minimum wage salary coming in, which, you know, we'll take it. We'll take whatever we can because the rest, I was obviously working uh, without paying ourselves a salary. But after that, we were able to get some of kind of early startup programs, a little bit of money here and there. And there's some really interesting R&D programs that fund your engineering salaries and can reimburse like up to 80% of those salaries. So I put in money, my co-founders put in money to pay ourselves a salary to access the program, get 80% of our salaries reimbursed. So I think all that to say, like we were bootstrapping and shoestringing and really scraping everything we could have from any program possible to get this thing off the ground. 
That's uh, smart. So what do you recommend people like Google to find those type of programs if they aren't in like Montreal, Canada? Is there specific ones that you can recommend or what are your suggestions? Because this is pretty smart. If you mean if they're here specifically? Well, no, really anywhere. Yeah. I mean, it's surprising how much exists. Like that program for the unemployment insurance thing, it's meant for people who want to start a barber shop. It's not a tech program, but it's there. And as long as you hustle, as long as you go, like you do the work, you can access it. Now, if you're a repeat founder and you've got the funds, like you can skip all of that and it'll save you a lot of time and a lot of energy. And if you've got a strong network of angels and investors, you can start by pitching them and getting money right from the start. And again, save you from a lot of that work. But if you don't and you roll up your sleeves, there's a lot you can do and a lot you can find. Yeah, but what do I Google? Do I Google entrepreneurship program to get, <laughs> you know, like, I don't know exactly what to put in. Yeah, for yeah, that. yeah. I'm trying to remember, like, I found some lists and of the different government programs. And I think those were compiled. It might be from some people on the program I had joined or some other colleagues I had known, but they had like some lists. Here are all the government programs available. And I could basically go through them all and then find the website and understand the criteria and go through the process. And I'm not sure Google knows so much about them, to be frank. Well, I'm trying to think, is there one specifically that worked really well for you? And then maybe I can back and research it because I don't even know what to put in because I'm putting like, I don't know, reimbursement or refund program. It's kind of hard to figure out what do you even call this, a credit, an entrepreneurship credit. I don't know what to even search for. I honestly wish I could tell you like that would be so much easier. <laughs> but like all the programs are these weird acronyms that someone in an office decided, yeah, this will make it sound like something, but it's meaningless and it's unsearchable. So one of the programs that we were using, for example, it's a Canadian program called IRAP. I don't even remember what it stands for. And it's with like the National Research Center or something. But unless you know to search IRAP, good luck. But if you go to some of the meetups and things like that, like in the community, I was able to find some of this information. Okay. Yeah. I looked at some, maybe if people Google like small business grants program, I'm seeing that or something like small business tax credits programs. Those are maybe two main things that people could Google to hopefully try to find them. Because I agree, there's a lot of them, but there's acronyms and some of them might be city-based, some of them might be state-based, some might be yeah. university-based. Like, so... Yeah, but it's smart. So you just searched all these as many as you could and you found ones that you worked for or that would work for you and then you just applied. Yeah, and you hustle because the reality is all of these programs, like they want to get people in that are going to be successful because it makes them, makes the program look better and it makes all of these people working in bureaucracy feel like they're involved in something bigger. I remember like Whenever I could say, hey, I've already been, I'm already in this, this, this program or involved with this, this, this person, it really added weight and credibility for this, you know, pencil pusher that's used to working with all sorts of different kinds of businesses and unemployed people or whatnot. And they were like, oh, cool. I, I feel like if I help this person, I will get a little bit of the reward of the success, if you want, being associated to this. And it, it really worked out well. And I was able to get into a bunch of programs that weren't usually made for what we were doing and at the same time get exemptions on some of the requirements and things like that. Like everything is flexible. We forget often behind these government programs that there is actually, there are humans making the decisions and those humans have the same kind of wants and needs as everybody else. Yeah. So I guess, if, again, if you're in the US or anywhere else, maybe you can look up your country and whatnot. But I think just going with the small business grants, kind of looking at that first, that should hopefully land you on 
the SBA website and it looks like they might have multiple lists. And again, you just got to keep researching. It can be specific different ways. So you applied to those and then you said there's some co-founders for this company. How did you meet those guys? So part of this kind of Founders Institute program, there's a cohort of other idea stage people and they're all basically just on paper at the beginning. And you go through all these kind of early validation phases and testing out and some succeed and some obviously fail, but you also go through this as groups and as teams. So you get to meet a lot of other early entrepreneurs and that actually became like a prime spot for me to recruit my co-founders. And there are three people that joined through that. They each had their own kind of thing they were working on. And as obviously things didn't necessarily work out, I was able to kind of build relationships and pick the ones that was a good fit for us and tell, hey, you want to join in on this one? And they already knew about us, about what we were starting. So they had already kind of vetted that, right? And it was a pretty good place for co-founder and early employee recruitment, turns out. Okay. And so you went in to the Founder Institute with your idea with Unido, like the same thing that we talked about right in the beginning, the company that you have today? Yeah, it was a different name. And there were two other ideas I was testing through them that quickly got invalidated in a way. But Unido got an early MVP with some traction. So it was standing out. Okay. How long are you at the Founders Institute before we kind of can start the company officially, I guess? And just tell us about the building blocks of building your first company. The program is a few months long and you have to come out of it in a way you have to incorporate because I hadn't incorporated yet at the time. So I incorporated the company at the end really quickly, put a hundred bucks in the company and that was it. But the idea was still being validated and they were still basically getting into the product work. But as I came out of the program, I had some co-founders with me and we'd found like an intern and we were kind of off to building the very first versions of the product. Oh, I love that sound. It's the sound of another sale on Shopify. The all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify gives entrepreneurs the resources once reserved for big business so upstarts, startups, and established businesses alike can sell everywhere, synchronize online and in-person sales, and effortlessly stay informed. Scaling your business is a journey of endless possibilities. And believe me, this podcast started out selling shirtless photos of myself. And today, we're selling Patreon memberships left and right. And we're not stopping there, because success is a million milestones on a forever evolving path. You know, I love how Shopify has the tools and resources that make it easy for any business to succeed from down the street to around the globe. Like mine, Shopify powers millions of businesses from first sale to full scale, reach customers online and across social networks with an ever-growing suite of channel integrations and apps, including Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Pinterest, and more. Synchronize your online and in-person sales. Gain insights as you grow with detailed reporting of conversion rates, profit margins, and beyond. More than a store, Shopify grows with you. This is Possibility powered by Shopify. Go to shopify.com slash millionaire, all lowercase, to start your free trial and get full access to Shopify's entire suite of features. Grow your business with Shopify today. Go to shopify.com slash millionaire right now. Shopify.com slash millionaire. 
it's really insightful so as soon as you said you were setting up the patreon it was just like yeah i'll help this guy you know i take a lot of value from it you know it's as simple as that yeah i really appreciate that man well i was gonna say have you checked out our newest patreon episode yeah i was just like oh well i'm in the car i'll just listen to it whatever but i'm not getting anything out of this and then you're like wow i'm not that naive or anything but it really did open your eyes and were you still building it within like when you go to the founders institute i imagine they have office building right are you still building it while you're actually in their office or did you have to go buy your own office or you know go rent something or like how'd that work out yeah they had a partnership with a co-working space initially so we had like free desk space in a way there but quickly out of it as we grew we work was coming up at the time and opening an office in montreal and they were opening a first section of a first floor we hustled there to get really, really cheap rent. And then we started. So we moved to the first tiny office in WeWork and hustled to get other people, other companies at WeWork. So we got all these referral, I guess, bonuses and rebates. So we were able to stay there for really cheap for a while. But eventually we managed to raise some angel funding and we started growing. Well, how long did it take till you got angel funding? A while. A year, two years, three years, four years, five years? How long? probably on the one year mark or so. So did you make no money up till that point, but you still were, like you said, getting minimum wage from these different programs that you were on? Yeah, and we had invested like 10, 15 grand in the company to pay ourselves salaries each. So not really making money or paying ourselves out of our own pocket, which is weird. But yeah, and when we raised that angel money, we still weren't on the market yet. We still had a lot of stuff, like really basic building stuff. But we had some early, we had an MVP and we had potential partnerships and that led to, some angel money coming in. So how do you even start this? Like what software or program are you using or coding? You know, just that might help some of the tech people are listening, but I'm just curious, like how you even build this thing? Yeah, I mean, it's always, how do you get validation as fast as possible with building the least amount possible? So the first hacked up MVP was a bit of code that was running inside of a Chrome extension. It wasn't even a server. So we were syncing Asana and GitHub at the time and it was running that code was running in your Chrome extension. So if you turn off your computer, it wouldn't sync anymore. But the way we kind of got in there is through that Chrome extension, we were able to put a listing in the Chrome and the Chrome store, if you want. And we had a few like bonus features for Asana that ironed out a few wrinkles in their early in that product that were useful. And it had the sync. So it allowed us to start acquiring some early Asana users with those like free features, and then they would discover kind of that sync functionality. And we were getting, you know, handfuls of users here and there and getting some early feedback on the functionality and the needs and the problems to solve. That's how we hacked it without having to pay for anything, really. No hosting, no servers, no nothing. We get some early users. And were people randomly finding it, or were you just going around the WeWork space and asking people to try this out? Like, how were y'all able to even get the first users? We were just acquire them through the Chrome store. So people searching in the Chrome for probably Asana or whatever and finding us there. So we weren't investing in anything on the acquisition side at all. And just people finding us through search and then they start a trial or there wasn't even a trial. They just installed the extension and we'd reach out to them in any way possible. And so when it connected Asana and GitHub, was it specifically like I'd make a card in Asana and do something? I don't really know maybe necessarily what GitHub is as much. I've been on it before, but I kind of feel like it's something for coders. So maybe if you explain what GitHub is, I know what Asana is, though. 
Yeah, so it was really GitHub as an issue tracker for like bugs and features and Asana as like a task management tool. So I was syncing tasks with GitHub issues so that you could have feature requests or managing a backlog or roadmap in your Asana and then push some of that stuff into for the developers to pick up in GitHub directly. And as those things get completed in the development cycle natively in GitHub, the kind of roadmap in Asana would be always up to date. And that's that was the initial kind of use case we were solving. Okay. Was that enough that you were able to get venture money to show people actually enjoy this? It helped enough, enough people having this problem. You just said, hey, this is one problem. We want to make the simplest solution, but I can see us doing this for other online programs. Yeah. So we got that a bit of an early traction, but then we start, okay, we need to build like that as like it shouldn't stop working if you close your computer, which seemed like a really important feature, I guess. So we started moving that to a full application with my co-founders. And we also started talking to partners and other players like Asana and see if there was demand there. And we were getting some interest there where they needed. And Rike was an early partner, which is like another project management tool. And they were like, yeah, a lot of our customers are on Jira and we can't. We often either sell to them unless there's an integration with Jira or like our customers are frustrated by this. Can you help? So we were drafting some early letter of intent with them, and that really helped us get the first interest from investors where there was like, okay, there's demand and it's working and solving the problem for a few users for this one pair of app. And then there's demand for other applications that are saying their customers want this. So they are able to, I guess, extrapolate and make a bet. And so how much money were you able to raise to venture capital? We raised 500 Canadian, 500K Canadian. So I guess half a million Canadian at the time. Okay. And then that goes in your bank account. And then are you hiring more developers? And do you get all that money right then too? Yeah, it was, I'm trying to remember pretty much, yeah, all in one shot. And then you're like, okay, well, that might look like a lot of money compared to what there was before. But now let's pay ourselves a salary, right? Even if it's a very tiny salary. So the money is not that big pretty quickly as you have. We made our first two developer hires at the time and we're still here actually. So yeah, first hires at that point and you're saying, okay, now we have to run a real business. So we have to have accounting and we have to have payroll and all that fun stuff. So it's not like, hey, we've got a ton of money. Let's go crazy because it really isn't. So we were very conservative at the beginning, paying ourselves very, very low kind of get by salaries. And then trying to make the most out of that and the, giving ourselves the longest runway possible to build a product. And so you said instead of making it right, the Chrome extension, like you're saying, you have to make it an online application. Like, how do you build an online program, like an application, if you will? I don't even know. Maybe this helps developers, but I think also just me specifically trying to learn more details of even how you make this transition. So how do you start building that online app and where do you do it? I was still coding a little bit at the time, but eventually, it's kind of funny, the team went, okay, Mark. It's okay. We got this. Don't touch the code anymore, which is, I guess, a reflection on some of my early work. So better people took over. But the initial code had been written away so that it could be moved to server-side. We had written it all in JavaScript, which at the time was, I guess, a good move because JavaScript had this whole node thing that could run both in the browser and on the server. So we were able to repurpose a lot of the initial code and start building a UI on top of it. So it's nothing really mysterious here. You just take whatever, figure out the best framework for you to build the app, try to not be wrong and start building the front end. So you weren't wrong, you said? You still use JavaScript today and run it that kind of same way? Yeah, and I mean, this is again, getting in the really technical weeds, but 
we were on React was coming up as a new framework then. We just had to get on board with that. And that turned out to be a good long-term decision, I guess. But again, that's super technical. That's all right. Well, I, just because I think I like hearing these names because I've like heard of Ruby on Rails and stuff like that before. And I understand kind of Java. I've heard that. I don't know what's equal to what, but if you made a different, if you did it not in JavaScript, would you have been screwed if you went in a different way? I don't know. I think the language has an impact, but ultimately that's not what's going to make or break your company. Most modern languages and platforms have a pretty rich ecosystem that you can build most things in. But we are an API. We integrate different APIs and JavaScript is kind of the native language for the API world today. It felt like a natural thing to do and it still does. Okay. And so how long did it take for these guys to make the online application after you hired them and got that money in the bank? And once we raised, I think we launched the first version in Halloween on Halloween night, 2016 or so. And that's when we had our first paying customers as well. Were you the first paying customer? I was not. It was actually... Your mom and dad? No, some guy in Florida. And I remember because... I'm in Florida. Well, there you go. Maybe it was you. But funny story, we had not opened up this... Like in the application, you could not buy yet. We hadn't opened it up. That was starting on the 1st of November. But some guy, as we were testing the billing system and all the day before, managed to buy. And that's this Florida guy. I don't remember his name, though. I remember like a payment came in the day before we launched and everybody's like, hold on, there's something, someone just paid. And that was be like, but we haven't opened up the application yet. And he'd find a way through the public beta to pay for it on his own. And I remember there was a lot of celebration because they thought, everybody thought it was a prank, but no, it wasn't. And it's not a customer we even, like we didn't tell them, they found us, they decided to, they wanted to pay, which was like a good moment. I would say 10 bucks, 10 bucks a month, I think is what he paid. Right. And it was this still, even though it's different from the extension, was this just for GitHub and Asana? Those were the two apps you connected? Yeah, exactly. It was the same browser or same website, excuse me, was the same website that you have today? You mean in terms of the domain name or name the company? Yeah. Yeah. Domain name. Yeah. We hadn't renamed the company to Unido at that point. There's like a naming story there. I don't know if you want to go there, but... Uh, well, do you want to go there? I mean, it depends if it's interesting. Uh, I'm trying to think of how interesting it is. I mean, the first name of the company was called Crosscheck. I like that. And you're Canadian. I, I like the name because we're syncing tasks and there's this checkmark stuff. And I guess I was emotionally attached to it. But it was a pretty bad name because it's kind of violent. And <laughs> You're right. <laughs> if anyone doesn't know, it's for hockey when you basically hit somebody into the boards, basically. When you hit them on the back. and Oh, in the back. Yeah, it's not really a good thing. I remember when we incorporated, we had to do the trademark check make sure that we weren't taking in that would cause us problems down the line. And my lawyer came back and said, oh, yeah, I found some API thing company called Crossject. Like, you can't take that name. It's a risk you don't want to take. And I was super frustrated. And I was like, I hate naming stuff. It's such a pain. And I have to go back and figure that out and change all this. Like, change the logo I'd paid five bucks on Fiverr or something for, which at the time felt like a lot of work. And it took me a long time to find that name. It was one of my co-founders. It was kind of his... Uh, initiation or pilot project. And he brainstormed a bunch of names and that one came out, we tested it. And it turned out to be a really good name because it embodies a lot of the culture and the mission of the company. What name was that? That's Unido. How about the day you launched? It was Unido.io? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we did that before the launch, just after Incorporate actually. Gotcha. Well, yeah, I wanted to do the Wayback Machine. So that's what I was wondering. That's why I always got to find out what your first domain was. Yeah. Okay. Now you're scaring me, but yeah. 
but probably you can see the the Unido website what it looks like at, at lunchtime. Yeah, it looks like well, course, some of the pictures they don't have in their database or whatever. But yeah, it says synchronize GitHub with Asana, and it sounds like you had that Chrome extension there. And it's always interesting again, like how people get started that you've got to start somewhere, right? So that's the reason I like doing that sometimes because your website looks great today, but we all again starting day one, that's not where it happens, right? No, it looked like a programmer had done design, which is exactly what it was. All right. First day, you have a Florida man who is paying customer. How many customers did you get that first year? Oh, the first year, a few hundred probably. I remember like the first month we had, I think, 50 customers, which was pretty cool given, you know, the how long we've been hitting at this in the basement. But yeah, we're past 3,000 customers now. Well, did you consider that like a huge win? Like even in the beginning of the first year or first month or whatever, like were you on the projection that you thought you'd be? So I think the overall, the answer to that is always no. It's like you always think and project more than what it's going to be. But in retrospect, it was pretty good. And there's this eternal optimism in entrepreneurship that is almost a requirement. Like if you're not an optimist, you won't do it because... Starting a business does not make sense on so many aspects <laughs> from an expected value perspective, you know? So there has to be irrationality and optimism in it or nobody will do it. Um, no, yeah. I think if you look at the probability of success, it makes no sense. Nope. But I think we all think, well, I'm smarter than the four out of five that went out of business. <laughs> so that's the problem. They said like everyone thinks they're like, if you have an average on how people think they look, what one out of 10 Everyone thinks at least minimums a six, probably seven, right? Like no one says five, <laughs> four, three, two, one, right? There is median. <laughs> yeah, but I think there's a sampling issue where most of the stuff we see about startups is glorified and successful. And so we highly overestimate the chances of success because we just don't see the volume of people that have attempts, you know, and that's part of the game. And I think I have one reference point, which is how many companies went into that Founder Institute program with an idea and how many are still like alive today. I think there's what, 30 people, 40 people in and there's two and a half, I would say today. So who's the half? Well, it's the business that kind of became more of a lifestyle business, let's say, and they stayed really small with a few people. So no, it's a full business. I, that's not fair. We won't say who that Sorry, is. Sorry, Pierre. <laughs> Never mind. You you're listening <laughs> to this. Yeah. <laughs> but no, like uh, that's the ratio that gives some perspective. So I think people don't realize that that ratio. And so the expected value or calculation is more like, hey, I saw these guys be super successful or gals and I could do that. And no, the reality is there's a lot of external factors that are out of your control and you just have to accept that create like that the odds are of success are really low. Yeah, because I even like read this tweet the other day and definitely agree with it. They're just saying that even if you bet on something that would actually work, if you're too early, you're still screwed, right? So if you would have started, you need to maybe 10 years earlier, maybe people still wouldn't have understood it. I mean, maybe no one would have thought about it, but you also have to figure out timing too. So there's different things, but there's the people in your company, the timing. I mean, probability wise, I mean, that's why I Hopefully people get that through my interviews. I try to touch on those either personal down points or business down points, but at least you saw two, we talked about two businesses that, or at least one that didn't work out in the beginning, right? I don't know if you consider it two that you had been startups at. 
Yeah, I mean, I think in all cases, the external, like there's things that are totally out of your control, like the macro environment. And we're going through some of that today. Like there's a lot of stuff happening in the world that's pretty shitty and it has an impact on your business, whether you want it or not. And they're totally out of your control. And even when we started Unido in the early days, like we were way early. Even when I mentioned Zapier, nobody knew what that was. And yet they're valued at above $5 billion today. So there is a timing thing. And like sometimes you're too early, but it's good to be a bit early because then you'll be ahead when everybody catches on on the value for this. And today integration has become a very like high demand sector. And there's just a ton of opportunity there. But it wasn't like that before. So if we'd started a bit earlier, I probably wouldn't have made it. And if we started a bit later, maybe we wouldn't have made it either. So it's, yeah, I agree with you. Like there's so many factors at it. So if you're going at it purely from a, I'm going in for the glory, I think you could be disappointed pretty fast. You got to value the journey and you got to value the people you're going to discover along the way, because that's the rewarding part, right? That's much more rewarding. And I think that's been something that I learned from my early mentors is just, you spend your life looking for people you want to work with. And often it takes a long time to realize that. I think it's important. I mean, even on an easier way for, I guess, people to imagine if they don't know, it's like starting a podcast today. There's so many podcasts now that's very simple to, and you might be disappointed with how many downloads you get because it's already kind of the wave. Like it's going to keep growing, it sounds like, but capture the market. If I would have started my podcast maybe five years earlier, I'd probably be in a much better financial position. But even if I started one five years from now, I mean, it's like being an influencer on Instagram like 10 years after it started versus right when it started. So the whole idea with the timing, again, is one of those things that you've got to make sure that you're a part of. But again, if we're looking at probability, hopefully people understand that we try to bring out these things that are not going to work out for you. And you have to keep trying to go on to the next idea or whatever you think will work. Because you even talked about that you had two other ideas when you went into the Founder Institute, right? That didn't work. So that's two ideas there. It's important, like you said, enjoy the journey. I always try to live in the present. And it's good that you kind of, I guess, sounds like you have that same mindset. I mean, I live in the present. I also think a lot about the future, but it's just realizing you have to accept the fact there's a lot of things that are outside of your control. And that's part of the game. And there's so many reasons, reasons that people give themselves for starting their own business that are not the right reasons. And that's, I think, a big source of failure too, is just, you know, you're doing because you want to be your own boss or because you think you're going to make a ton of money. Like that's not really how things work in reality. Well, for you, I mean, how did it work out after, like you said, you got those users the first year? I mean, did everything go well up till you've been doing it for, I guess, seven years? Oh, you need, oh, everything's perfect. Everything's, you know, perfect, flawless execution and it's all beautiful. Which, of course, this is what you'll hear from entrepreneurs. As entrepreneurs, we're trained to say the positive and always make it shine. But obviously, there's always challenges along the way. I mean, I had two of those co-founders that, that we parted ways with along the way. There's like always a lot of bumps along the way. But I think culture and your values, that's the most... Like, you have to be intentional about those things. And if there's one thing I think I learned from my previous experiences that I applied early on at Unido was... Let's be intentional about the culture and the values that we want to put in the company. And let's make sure those are foundationally aligned with everyone. And let's build from there. And that is something that's really made the difference, I think, for us along the way. Strong culture, very clear culture, and being understanding who we are and not trying to be everything to anyone. So what was your culture and how were you able to achieve it? 
a lot of our culture is based on transparency and open work. The company's mission is to unite work across tools, teams, and organizations. And obviously, our product does that by integrating tools. But what we're really aiming for is not having the tools get in the way of working across the organization, of collaborating with your peers. And that's kind of the tendency today with the proliferation of software. But it's also how we work internally. And so we have management and structure, but from a execution and day-to-day perspective, we work very horizontally and very collaboratively, and we work in the open. So transparency is something that a lot of companies say they have in the company, but rare are those that actually operationalize it or actually act on it. So some of the examples that things we do that stand out and people recognize are open salaries inside the company and everyone knowing everyone's salaries. The financials are shared with the company. The investor updates, the board decks are shared with the company. And there's this notion of we share by like work is public and in the open within the company, obviously, by default, unless there's a good reason not to, whether for legal or HR reasons. So have you ever had an issue with the salary thing? Nope. And a lot of people have asked me about this. It's the kind of opposite. Like it makes salary a non-issue. And whereas in most companies or in a lot of companies, salaries is kind of a taboo topic, but yet everybody knows other people's salaries and and it becomes a subject of politics and negotiations and frustration. And what I hear typically from staff is, well, I know they're public. I looked at the spreadsheet once when I started and I never looked back because there is a, we're very explicit. Like when we review salaries, it's very data-driven and we explain how we did the salary revision. So the notion is that everybody believes and agrees that the compensation in the company is fair for the market. It's not top of market, but it's not the highest salaries in the market, but it is fair. And salaries are typically not a motivator, but they can be a demotivator. So in this case, we've kind of eliminated a lot of salaries as a demotivator throughout the company. And it's avoided a lot of negotiations and a lot of hiring stuff, but you can't cut corners, right? You got to do your salary grid correctly and you have to stick to it. Why did your two co-founders leave? Well, the first one went back to France with his girlfriend and we had decided that we weren't going to do a distributed company and this was pre-pandemic and we decided that it was best to part ways. And if they were going to go back to France, we didn't want to have one of the co-founders remote. And that was pretty early on. And the second was later and he came up, he was kind of running more the management side of engineering, came up to us and said, I'm not sure I'm your guy to scale. I think I might not be the best person for the next phase, uh, which is very hard to do and very humbling. And so we had that conversation and we just parted ways and in good terms, you know, I think that's been really key for us. Well, what has been some of the biggest struggles? Because I mean, we've kind of talked about it, but I specifically, I think that would help a lot because it seems like you're a very transparent person. Could you tell us a few? A few of the challenges along the way, because those are not good enough examples of having to deal with the co-founder leaving and then explaining it to your board of directors and why are there some shares that are owned by someone outside the company and stuff like that. Those are pretty big challenges. They Maybe I made it sound like they aren't, but they were for sure. And then from a technical, the problem we're trying to solve ended up being very hard to solve because we're allowing you to do edits from two different systems that are evolving from a, two products that have different feature sets and evolving at different spaces and we're allowing you to make changes across those two tools. 
and bidirectionally without losing any data. And as we got more users building more of those workflows that connected more and more of the tools, we started getting into more depth of the problem itself. And we really wanted business users to be able to salt to use our product and not needing any technical skills. So we don't want them to have to go through logs or understanding programming or branches and stuff like that to be able to figure out the product. So it did take us, as we discovered and went deeper on this problem and we got customers using us at bigger and bigger scale, we did have to do a lot of work on the core platform along the way. And, you know, in the end, it always, and I think it'll always be the truth, it always takes longer than you think it's going to take. But if you knew that ahead of time, you wouldn't do it. So I'm hesitant to tell people that. I agree. That's one thing that I've always said is, when I talk to anyone, it at least takes, I think, like four times longer. It's always at least twice as long. But again, like you said, I don't think anyone would start something if you knew how long it took, right? So I think they say that's one of the biggest flaws in humans is estimation of time of how long something will take. It's like number one. But I mean, how about like non-technical? Because, you know, personally, that would hurt with the co-founders leaving. I don't, just to me, it sounds like balancing the amount of people that you have and relationships within your employees, if you've got about 60 people on your team. I don't know. It seems like over time, because everyone's different, it's not like a program that you can easily change some code and hopefully it'll work. I mean, that's one thing that I've heard from a lot of founders that I think has been the hardest. But again, if anything that happened that you didn't expect since this is, I guess, your first company. I do think like I had to shift from a product mindset. Like I was a product guy and here I was building a company now and I couldn't be the product guy anymore. And I had to let go of that. It's not easy, right? Because you're good at this and you know this, your space and the problem you're solving really, really well. And yet you have to let go of that stuff and let other people possibly do a lesser, in your opinion, obviously, a lesser job. I think letting go of the stuff you're not good at is easy. Like I was doing all the early accounting and stuff like that. That's really easy to let go of. But the stuff that you're really good at, like product crafting and strategy, that was a lot harder to let go of. And it's a fine line of disconnecting yourself completely and in a way depriving potentially the company of some of your experience and insights. And at the same time, letting other people grow into it and free you as the founder, as a leader to work on what you should be doing, which is company crafting. The hack for me was really to, and I don't remember where I took this from, but was to see the company as a product. And that helped me kind of do that transition. So seeing, seeing as like, there's a backlog of features that your employees want. You have technical debt or things you're late on in terms of your process or your org structure, and you're going to have to pay back some of that debt eventually, or it'll cost you a lot if you don't reorg in the right way or things like that. And you have to structure your company for maybe the next stage, but not too far ahead. Like you don't want to architect too far ahead. You don't want to be behind either. So that kind of mindset of it's almost there's a product, there's a roadmap, there's some bugs, and there's some feature requests help me kind of transition to company crafting. And then thinking about org structure, thinking about hiring, thinking about culture as a way to scale the company. That was one of my big shifts through this process. Appreciate you doing the call here. Yeah. Favorite podcast by far. I love it. Oh, yeah. Why is that? So I graduated 2017 from Michigan. I heard that shout out the other day. That was pretty cool. Basically, two months after I graduated, I started listening to the podcast. Loved it. I think there were maybe 30 episodes or something out by that point. And I consider myself to be pretty entrepreneurial. Started a business last year. This helped a ton. 
And it's hard, I think, to find entrepreneurs. I was just looking for entrepreneurial meetups. And I think, wow, this is more of an awesome opportunity to talk with other entrepreneurs. The value is, I mean, it's insane. Like people make these types of entrepreneurial insight things are thousands of dollars. This is 12 per month, but per month is like nothing. I guess looking and how far you've gone through your company now, it's been about seven years, right? I mean, is it where you thought it would be seven years ago? I think I already told you, my answer is always going to be no, because I always thought that things would go a lot faster. But am I satisfied with where we are? Yes. Am I happy with where we produce? Absolutely. Like we're onto something amazing and we're ahead of the market on a lot of things. I'm excited, really excited about the future. And I'm always going to be excited about the future. But I'm also always going to be looking back, and maybe this is more introspective, but I'm sure that when I look back, I'll always be like, damn, I thought it would go faster. So it's this positivity, I think this key, but it's never enough. It's never fast enough, and it's never going to be fast enough. Well, how about personally? Which aspects personally? Right, any aspect. Is that everything that you thought it'd be? I mean, like, have you ever to give up a lot personally to be a co-founder or to start this business? Like, I know obviously people make some sacrifices and I know you've already emphasized and you wanted to retell me that, yeah, everything doesn't go as fast. But I mean, we all have ups and downs. I've heard some of the downs with business, but I didn't see any, hear anything dramatic personally. I think like I didn't sacrifice family. I don't think I sacrificed family and I'm pretty sure my wife would agree with that. So when I tell her your joke, your dad joke tonight, I'll ask her right after. But I did sacrifice on a lot of personal time, a lot of free time, friend time, entertainment time, like all that stuff goes out the window. And especially as they, I remember in the early days, like there were a lot of other founders around me and they were like, oh, let's do this. Let's do that. Let's go out. And it's a question of priorities. Like I knew that whatever time I wasn't spending on the business uh, and I was doing other stuff, it was time I was taking away from the family. And so the family was the thing I didn't want to cut to sacrifice. And so all the rest went out basically. Gotcha. Well, thanks for sharing, again, the ups and downs and even that at the end, because again, that's the idea is that we all have to make some sacrifices. So unfortunately, I think it happens way too often with family, with people. So it's good to hear that you didn't make that sacrifice, right? That you know, hear about how many people get divorced and whatnot. So I think if you go in with a mindset or a plan, like you sound like you did with your wife, that probably helped a lot. So I don't know if you have any other words of wisdom for anyone who's listening, who wants to be an entrepreneur or is one right now. Well, I think it's doable. Like there are some tough times and like I was fundraising while having young kids or I remember when I was raising the seed round, I was doing an investor pitch in Ottawa and I put out my phone on the table. And I said, hey, my wife is due in like two days. So if this rings, I have to leave. I don't wish that <laughs> to anyone in terms of pressure, but that's the kind of stuff that you go through as you start a business and have kids along the way, right? And it's doable. It's hard as hell. But you have to focus. And as long as you kind of keep your core values and stick to them and you're intentional about it, you're going to surround yourself with people that are aligned on those values. And the whole journey is going to be awesome. And whatever outcome happens, at least you will have worked with amazing people and you'll have learned a lot of stuff. And often the, that's worth it in of itself a lot. And if someone wants to say thank you for doing the interview, what's the best way for them to reach out to you, Mark? Yeah, I'm on Twitter, LinkedIn, and we post a lot both in MySpace and on the company, LinkedIn on company building culture. We are expanding our integrations, so check out unido.io. Any feedback on new integrations or our needs, 
We have an in-app chat and there are real humans there. So always open to hearing it. And of course, unido.io slash careers if you're interested in joining this amazing Montreal company. You can email me, Mark, at unido.io, and that's Mark with a C. Thanks for joining us, Mark. Thank you, Austin. Flash forward to 2009, and I'm back in the golf business as a club pro, and I get a message on my MySpace page from a 14-year-old kid in Mexico claiming that I was his father. You know, he says I impregnated his mom in the champagne room at a club in Cozumel on New Year's Eve in 1998. And I immediately called bullshit because I remember that night vividly. And there were at least five other guys with me uh, that were also prime candidates. So I have to go down there as part of a paternity hearing. And the night before I have to testify. So if you want to hear more interesting stories just like this preview, well, become a Patreon member today. You know you're missing out. Just check the link in your episode description below to join the club or go to millionaire-interviews.com forward slash Patreon. Join the club. Join the club. Join the club.